Welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We're on Instagram at podcastinglight. We tweet at podcastinglight. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Today on the show, we have Eddie Kramer. Eddie is a local one stagehand. He is a senior member of the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers, and he's also an ETCP certified electrician. Welcome, Eddie. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, more than glad to do it. Um, in the shutdown, it's good to have stuff to do. Seriously. And I know that you have a position at Radio City Music Hall. Uh, yeah, basically, I'm one of the crew. I deal with a lot of the tie-ins and power stuff, but I'm just, you know, one of the crew. If I may interject one second here, uh, for those of you from rock and roll, I am not that Eddie Kramer. That was not me who was uh, mixing Woodstock. I did not build Electric Ladyland. <laughs> and I still get phone calls because I'm the only Eddie Kramer listed in the New York book. Generally, it's high school kids who are drunk being urged on their friends to speak to the great Eddie Kramer. And he's a really nice guy, and I've chatted with him a couple of times, but give him a break, guys, and give me a break. You don't have much of a internet presence. Uh, no, I'm just, I'm an all-time guy. I don't really do very much on the internet. I think the only place I'm on is the uh, ESTA meeting um, minutes and stuff. I was one of those folks who, back in April and May, still thought we were going to be working in September. And so that the start date for work keeps rolling away has started to get kind of terrifying, honestly. I can well imagine our big moneymaker at the hall is the Christmas show, for the crew at least, and we've watched that disappear. We're basically back next year. Yeah. Have you had a, had a chance to come backstage during the Christmas show? No, I have not. I have worked at the hall, and I got to see the Camel Room, which was awesome. Like a lot of Broadway theaters, backstage is incredibly choreographed, just because stuff moves on and off so fast. If you're standing in the wrong place, you're blocking somebody's entrance, or you're blocking a piece of scenery, or you're in the way of a light. So everything is choreographed. It still is a little bit of old school where there are giant scenery pieces that are pushed on stage by 20 guys. Like the bus? Oh, well, bus is all automated, but like the oh. department store interior or Santa's workshop. The bus drives on stage, performs its cues on stage. It's all automated. Oh. Drives off stage, drives back one for, for a curtain pull and drives off. It weighs better than five tons, so <laughs> you can't really push it. Got it. But just seeing pretty much one of the last of all-time stagecraft happening was it's not going to survive the, you know, the next 20 years. It's true. When I started working on Broadway, I was kind of surprised by exactly how much is automated these days, You know, where it's just like it's worth spending hundreds of thousands of dollars up front to save money on dudes. Way back until the 90s or so, first thing to remember is Broadway was, has been wired with DC at that time. So you couldn't choose modern dimmers on Broadway. It had nothing to do with the union. It was just that the theaters were wired with DC. The Schubert's and the other theater owners were not going to spend the money to put AC wiring in the theater because why should they spend the money when you could rent piano boards from Forstler, which is the way it had been going for 100 years, worked fine, state of the art, nobody cared. So you needed AC for projection because you didn't really have any kind of DC projectors, especially if you're doing slides or multimedia. I don't know if people are aware of exactly how long projection has been part of theater and of, and of entertainment. People tend to think of projections as being something that came around along with video, but it's something that's been an integral part of the business for as long as there's been light and things to put in front of light to project an image. I wasn't thinking about this, but I've got documentation. I've got books on projection from the 30s. There was a uh, book published by Drama Books years ago when they published books on projection for the community theater, which was all you know, home-built projectors and do-it-yourself. Yeah. Joseph Slobovich, I'm probably totally murdering the name, was a Czech dramaturge in the 60s and 70s who did a lot of stuff with projection and stuff, and it was the new theater of the era, of the period. Projection goes back forever. Just a short example of that, Radio City Music Hall was designed and built to have projected scenery in addition to everything else. And there's actually a bump out on the back wall of the theater for a rear projection booth. The rear projection booth literally was on the back wall of the building. Behind Radio City, when it was built, was an empty lot. So you had this wart on the, back of the, on the side of the building. Projection booth is still there. They built what's now the Associated Press building behind the music wall. 
it envelops the rear projection booth. And we used to be able to go up the ladder to the rear projection. The ladder continued further up and you came to a trap door, the bottom underside of a trap door. You pushed that off and you were on top of a roof, roof drain, tar paper and everything else on what, you know, around you, bricks around you. And the other side, you were in the fire stairs to the Associated Press building. Amazing. Yeah, just built it around that. So, yes, projection has gone on forever, and so have I. So um, they had to get AC into the theaters so they could run... uh... Correct. You needed the AC for the projectors. You also needed AC for automation when you were putting in AC for that. But no theater owner was going to pay to have Con Ed come in and transfer over to AC. It was up to the producers of the show to do it. One thing you have to remember about the early producers are the only thing they hated more than unionized labor was other producers. <laughs> and if you came along and needed to have AC in the theater you were renting from the Schubert's, you would have to pay to have the AC installed. After your show closed and you left, the AC was still there. The next producer would come by and he would have free AC. Nobody was going to buy the competition power. Of course. The other thing that happened was the producers had to raise the money to do the show. The equation at that time was you could raise another $10,000 or whatever it was to put AC into the theater. You would save the salary of one electrician because one guy could do it rather than two boards. However, you'd have to raise this $100,000 to electrify things. If the show was a hit, it didn't matter. $100,000 you know, gets amortized over two or three years and no problem. If the show was a failure, instead of having to raise $400,000 to put on the show, you had to raise $500,000 that made it a lot harder for the show to succeed. Yeah. If you didn't put the AC in, you saved yourself whatever whatever the installation cost was and you just you were just adding another man on the crew for, you know, at that time it was 600 bucks a week or something. So it was not a lot of money. So the mathematics of that of the period was there was no advantage to having AC in the theater. Somebody else would profit from it long term. And you'd have to raise more money and make and have a higher chance of your show being a flop. Nowadays, with the corporate producers, people look at the show and say, well, we'll put on a show. The show's going to run, you know, seven to 10 years. And over the course of seven to 10 years, we can spend a million dollars on scenery because if it saves us two or three salaries of deck carpenters, deck electricians, or everything else, we're that much ahead because a stagehand for, you know, five to seven years is probably a million bucks. Once you add up all of the what that electrician costs, because there's all kinds of additional fees on top of the salary, and shows didn't used to run for seven to ten years normally. No, they they would they would run for a year or two. But a lot a lot of the expenses are you know social security, federal unemployment insurance, and a whole bunch of other benefits that the employer pays. So you know it's not just the salary; it's it's everything else. So when did that change? Was that something that the league kind of pushed? How did we go from DC to AC? Part of what happened was Con Ed was pushing it big time because they were trying to get rid of, they didn't want to generate DC. With the deregulation of the utility industry, Con Edison became what they refer to as a pipe. Yeah. Except in certain cases, they no longer generate power. All they do is buy power from a distributor and carry it over their lines and give it to the customer for which they get a fee from who's ever providing your power. So you started to mention that you were involved with some of the ESTA working groups. Can you tell me about your relationship with ESTA and with ETCP? ESTA is the overall organization. They run the standards groups and they run ETCP. ESTA started, it was originally started as an offshoot of the Theatrical Dealers Association. And it was started as a trade group. Basically, they would lobby for the businesses in the theater industry. And originally, membership in ESTA was limited to manufacturers, distributors, stuff like that. And there were no individual members. If you were just some guy off the street or some guy off the deck, there was, you know, you could, you could participate, but you aren't a member. And that gradually changed. And the focus of ESTA became a little more general. Okay. I'm sure you've heard the story about how DMX more or less started. No. Okay. Basically, in a, in a nutshell, and I guess it was the 80s as electronics was evolving, Every major demo manufacturer had a digital control system of some kind. The manufacturer would build their own consoles, use their own data system, and go into their own dimmers. It was virtually impossible to take an ETC system and marry it to a strand sentry board or you know anything like that because the systems weren't meant to work with one another. You're buying my dimmers, you're buying my controller, and you know that's it. Yeah. 
the shop sort of said, you know, well, we've bought, you know, we, we have this console with these dimmers and this console with another dimmer and another console with something else, all speaking electronics, all running data over mic cables or something like that. But you can't get one to talk to the other to talk to the other. A bunch of custom interfaces would be built for different things. I remember I was involved up in Marymount, uh, Manhattan years ago. Uh, again, we're talking the 80s where it's lost in the mists of time, but they bought a new console and they had the old dimmers that were built, architectural dimmers that were built into the theater, but the two didn't speak because it was different protocols. So we came in and we built a couple of interface boxes, you know, one language in the other language out. Can't remember the details. Plugged it all in and the system worked. Who were you working with when you did that? That was basically a Bob Goddard project. I think I was doing it on my own. So nothing was talking to anything else, but the rental shops had an inventory of dimmers and you would, they would have, they would say, well, we need to have, you know, 400 dimmers for this show or this, you know, this TV event or what have you. We have, you know, 150 of this brand and 300 of that brand and 200 of another brand. You know, we want to marry them together into one big system, but nothing spoke to anything. Steve Terry organized the rental shops to get together because they were all in trouble with this. And they basically said they weren't going to buy any more dimmers or consoles until they were interoperable. The biggest customers were the rental shops. And if they're going to stop buying, the manufacturers sort of sat up and took notice. A meeting was convened. Steve Terry was involved. Mitch Hefler was involved. There's a lot of uh, industry luminaries who are, were involved. They basically looked at a bunch of protocols and decided to use the Colortran protocol, which was a proprietary protocol, but they wanted it to run at a faster speed. So they wrote a, um, a loosey-goosey standard and published it, and everybody sort of adopted it. You still have problems now with stuff streaming DMX too fast and some of the older equipment not being able to respond to fast DMX because that was all the equipment that would work with the Colortrans stuff. So you've got decelerators when you run into that problem, which is less and less. So the DMX standard you know, happened. And after a few years, you know, it, it, they felt that it had to become made into an official standard somehow. And at that point, USITT was trying to do standards work. And so it became a USITT standard because they had a program in existence. It went into that. Unfortunately, the uh, USITT standards thing didn't work that well because they were meeting once a year. And it's very hard to accomplish too much on a once a year schedule. For sure. Yeah. So... It eventually got transferred over, and the US, USITT standards thing got merged into, into the ESTA standards thing, at which point it was opened up to a lot more participation. Uh, ESTA was able to become an ANSI standards writer, which basically means the standard now says ANSI, American National Standards Institute, E1.11. But that means that ANSI has approved the way that the standard was written. And basically, it means that no organization or group of people was able to have dominance in writing the thing. It wasn't like the manufacturer said, this is what we want, or the um, end user said something else, or the cable manufacturer got involved and said that there has to be you know, 47 pounds of copper in every foot of cable, so you have to buy a lot more copper. Just an absurd example. So ANSI standards mean that everybody who was interested had a say in the matter. Their comments might not have been accepted but they had an equal chance to put it out and sway the members of the community. Different ANSI organizations have different ways of accomplishing what they do. Esther does it through means of public reviews. They have a proposed standard. They announce to everybody, hey, we've got this proposed standard. There's like six or eight weeks to review the standard, make comments in it, to which the committee has to respond in a logical way and explain why they think your idea is not good or why they think it's a great idea. And if it's not good, what changes would, would be necessary in your proposal to make it acceptable? Got it. What working groups and standards uh, committees are you currently working with at ESTA? On ESTA, I sit on the electric power working group, the rigging working group, fog and smoke, follow spot position, stage machinery, and this Technical Standards Council, which is the uh, overall governing uh, body. What should we know about things that are currently under discussion? Well, the big thing right now that's under discussion in combination of the Esther and the National Electric Code is one of the deep, dark secrets of the theatrical industry is that six-circuit multi-cable is not code compliant. I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad that you came to that. 
it's kind of interesting. The, in, the industry evolved and there's just so much what I call Sakapex cable because I believe they were the first connector used on that or six circuit multi if you want to be correct. Did Amphenol invent it or did they just perfect it? Amphenol bought Sakapex a bunch of years ago. Oh, I see. So I'm not sure who invented it or what its evolution was. It's in the, what's called the military-style circular connector, which is like all of those uh, connectors you see on tanks and stuff with the screw shell, and it plugs in, and there's about a bazillion of them, and each one is different. Those actually started in the entertainment industry and migrated from us to the um, aircraft industry and avionics and, and became the military standard stuff. I see. But they originally in the 30s were, uh, were in theaters and backstage and I've got some uh, circular connectors from Kriegel. Wow, all right. That was the old days. And four-star on the Broadway market was a little different because the Broadway market you know, had been in existence for so long that nobody was buying anything new. They just owned tons of equipment. So what you would do is you would say that the cable to you know first electric unit number one needs to be 183 feet. Unit number two needs to be 180 feet. And the mass electrician would calculate, would figure this all out. The shops would actually cut cable to the length that the ME specified. Really? Yeah. And so you would get a bundle that was cut to length. And generally, they would take the pre-made bundles off the shelf and cut them to length for what you needed. But you would wind up with a four or a five conductor cable with an extra circuit in there that you didn't need. That would get marked spare. You never paid for spares. It was just the extra circuits that weren't economical to use because you know the length was wrong or it just didn't work out, but that was your spare. So your lamp had a pin connector on it, your cable had a female pin connector on it, and a stage plug on it to plug into the porcelain pocket on your piano board or your preset panel. A good electrician would spec the cables, and the cable would fall exactly where he needed it, and there would not be 40 feet of cable tied up on top of the uh, piano board because it was too long, and you wound up getting jumpers when you had a problem. When you, when you had to move a fixture. Either move a fixture or more often, uh, you kind of messed up on the cable and the uh, ends of the stage cable was too short. When you moved the fixture, you moved it from point A to point B, you had to jump the circuit over. And you kind of blew the surprise because you revealed what the uh, secret phrase was for the cable that you use when you move a fixture, jumper. So the standard Broadway system, you basically had individual cables friction taped together run to the lamps. Yeah. So New York never really had a lot of multi-cable. Multi-cable was a um, special product. And I recall there were a couple of shows that I had done where we wanted to use multi to make ease of plugging deck units in and things like that. And the shops would not rent you multi-cable. It was a perishable. You had to buy it. So that raised the price of it. Nobody, nobody in New York wanted to do it. So New York stayed away from it. So um, basically what happened was there's just so much Sokopex in the industry now that to outlaw the Sokopex, you know, or to seriously say you can't use Sokopex and get rid of it, would basically destroy the industry. So what is the issue with it, and why isn't it code compliant? The code requires cables used in theater, Article 520 of the National Code, and we're subject to damage in fairs and carnival, Article 525, or in film and television production, Article 530, to be extra high usage cable. Extra hard usage is defined in the code, and basically it means it's got a really thick insulation on it. Like what you might see on a standard piece of 12.3 stage cable. Exactly. If you've, if you've looked at a piece of real 12.3 S-cord and compared it to a piece of 12.3 SJ, junior hard service, uh, is not as thick and not as heavy. It's more subject to damage because the outer jacket is not as heavy and the individual insulation around the conductors are not as heavy. When you get to the multi-cable... Nobody made a connector that could accommodate the extra hard usage cable. The back shell on them just weren't, wasn't big enough to take the very fat insulation. And if you were doing as people tended to do in the beginning, running a true 19 or 20, because they didn't make 19 conductor cable, through there, it was a fairly fat connection. Plus, the cable was a lot heavier. So somebody hit upon the idea of using what's called tray cable. The original ones were tray cable which was not listed as suitable for use in theaters, not listed for suitable for use in garages, but it would accommodate them. Some of uh, my buddies from Hollywood from who do film work refer to cinematic immunity. Basically, 
they don't have to do anything. They, you know, we're cowboys. We can do what we want to. You know, we don't need to follow no stinking code because with cinematic immunity, by the time the inspector comes along, you're out of there. You've, you you shot for three days, one location. And when, you know, the electrical inspector finally, you know, shows up, they're used to working, you know, in construction sites where, you know, you're, build, you're building a building, you're digging a hole. It's going to take you a couple of years to build the building. So if they come on Tuesday or they come on Friday, no big deal. You know, you cut your schedule for Tuesday and you show up on Friday at a, at a film location shot. You're looking at an abandoned site. So you've got cinematic immunity. Same thing with true and rock and roll. You used to tour around with everything. And, you know, you did a one-nighter or even two or three nights. By the time somebody showed up who knew what they were doing, they were gone. Yeah. So at this point in time, you've got all of this multi-cable where the jacketing on the cable is not extra high-usage cable. However, the industry has a very good record of safety with the multi-cable because there have been no reported serious injuries due to multi-cable. The most dangerous thing that I know of with multi-cable are guys carrying 100-foot lengths of multi-cable for eight hours in the day doing a location shoot, getting heat exhaustion because that's hard work. So the members of the entertainment industry from Panel 15 of the National Electric Code, which is called the Song and Dance Team, in wanting to deal with this because it's been an ongoing problem and it's something that we have to get ahead of because if something were to go wrong and somebody say, well, my God, there's all this cable, we'd be in deep trouble. At this point, the cable itself is not getting built into buildings, but the connector is. On permanent installs and stuff. Yeah. But because this tends to be very specialized stuff, inspectors bypass it. So it hasn't become a problem because nobody knows about it. You know, you do a, you put in a new system in a, in a building, or you renovate a system in a building, and you're going to put in Socopex panels. A Socopex panel is okay to use if it has listed Socopex connectors. Yeah. Breakout may or may not be compliant. But generally, what you get inspected on is what the permanently installed, permanently connected equipment is. The pile of cable and lamps sitting in the uh, storeroom back there, the lamps will have UL listings on it. And the inspector you know, sees the UL listings on the lamps and isn't too concerned about it. There's a new venue downtown that I drew out the electrical system for, for the uh, entertainment side of it. So that was a uh, power, fiber, Ethernet, the rigging control cables and all that kind of stuff. And the electrical engineer came back to me and said that the lengths we're talking about having on these on these runs from this location to this location, from Socopex panel, whatever, to Socopex panel, whatever, the runs are too long to run this with 10-gauge cable, and 8-gauge cable won't fit in the connectors you want. That sounds like a voltage drop problem. Yeah. The systems are either designed to work with a single 750-watt source for or let's say, five or six Source 4 Luster 2s. And so when I gave them eight sample designs for how it was going to be used, they were okay with derating the circuitry to be, I think they said they could stamp it for 12 amps. And so in the engineering documentation for the building, it, it states that those circuits can only be used up to 12 amps. And this is where diversification rears its ugly head. In the national code, and I'm sure it's in the city code, it allows you to have a 50% diversification factor in a theater. Why don't you tell all of our listeners out there what the assumption of electrical diversity is? Because this, this, this is a subject which is near and dear to my heart. That's something I've wanted to talk about on the show for a while. Let's start very simple and stay out of the theater. If you were to go to the electrical panel in your apartment or house or wherever you live and look at the circuit breakers in the panel, there is a 95% probability that when you total up 20 amps here, 20 amps there, 20 amps there, 50 amps for the dryer, 20 amps here, 20 amps there, you'll find that the total amount of breakers in the panel total to more than the mains. You are allowed in a residence to plug a 15-amp circuit into a 20-amp receptacle that's protected at 20 amps. Most receptacles, you can't plug a 20-amp connector into a 30-amp receptacle. The current and voltage on a twist-lock cable has to match or they physically don't line up. You can't plug different voltages or different currents of C-form connectors together because you don't want a cable that's rated for a lower amperage powered from a circuit breaker or overcurrent protective device at a higher amperage because that's how cables burn and melt because they're carrying more current than they should. And this is the reason there are the two different types of Edison plug. Right. There's the standard Edison plug that we're all used to where the hot and neutral are parallel to one another, and that's the 15-amp plug. 
There's the 20 amp plug, which are the ones that the hot and neutral are at 90 degrees to one another because that's designed to plug into a 20 amp receptacle. Everything else is designed to plug into a 15 amp receptacle. However, you are allowed to put a specialized, what they call a T-slot receptacle in where there's more than one outlet in the circuit. If it's a single outlet, it's got to be a 20 amp receptacle for a 20 amp circuit or a 15 for a 15 amp circle. If there's more than one outlet, the assumption is that some of the current will go to this one, some of the current will go to the other one. So that if you have a receptacle that'll take either a 15 or a 20 amp plug, the load on the circuit breaker is going to be 12 or 13 amps from the 15 amp receptacle that's plugged into the 20 amp over current protection. And also an additional load of a few amps from something else that's plugged into it. That's what's considered diversity. Okay. To put it into our own backyard, something we're used to, you may put in two or three 96 by racks or for the same 400 amp main. Because as you were saying, each circuit is only a 750 watt lamp. So on a circuit that's designed for 2,400 watts, you've got 750, you've got a third of the amperage. With a 12 gauge cable, although the 12 gauge cable is rated for 20 amps, you very rarely put, the, put a 20 amp load on it in the theater. So when the electrical engineer did his calculations, he was calculating that your cable was carrying everything at full. There's actually an, there's a, an exception in the code in, in the electrical section that says you can ca- calculate your loads based on a load schedule. One of the other elements of that was that the assumption of electrical diversity is used during the engineering of the electrical system. A lot of times people will go into a theater, and especially if they're adventurous, and you start looking at the size of things, and you see everywhere you've got you know, 400 amp breakers powering up five 400 amp loads because the engineer sat there and calculated and came up with, you know, well, it'll, it'll handle this. You know, we're, not, we're only running 75 amps on each of our loads. That leads me to the question, is there anywhere to find out what the actual diversity factor built into a system is other than, say, pulling the documentation that the electrical engineers produced as part of the building package? There is no standards for that, for theatrical, but under film studios, 53019, sizing of feeder conductors for television studios. It shall per- be permissible to apply the demand factors listed in this table to that portion of the maximum possible connected load for studio or stage set lighting for all permanently installed feeders between substations and stages to all permanently installed feeders between the main stage switchboard and stage distribution centers or location boards. For the first 50,000 VA, the demand factor is 100%. Above 50,000, up to 100,000, 75%. So you have to assume that's drawing three quarters of its load. And above 200,000 VA, 50%. 200,000 VA, using the Hollywood uh, 100% rule, basically is 2,000 amps. So they're saying you can supply a 200 amp distribution power with a 100 amp feeder. And the wording is, it shall be permissible, which means it's an optional thing. You can do it or you don't have to do it. Okay. One of the reasons why the engineers and those guys get the big bucks is a lot of this has not been codified. However, if you look at whatever piece of gear, whatever thing you have, and you look at how much power is being provided to it, you know, your diversity factor is that if the total possible load is X and you know that you have a supply of Y, That tells you the ratio. That makes total sense. So, for example, we have a 96 rack. You add up all the individual possible locations where power can be output from, you get over 700 amps. So if you have a 400 amp inlet to that thing, that means you have a diversity factor of 50%. Exactly. I would imagine that, you know, if you know the electrical engineers well enough, you may be able to get their documents. I have not really seen a lot of electrical engineering documents. I know that you get the uh, documents from the Mechies who have designed the rigging system for you. Their documentation includes all of their work notes, all of their formulas, so that you can go and look at their documents and say, oh, and they have the same thing where you know they have a diversity factor too. This is very important because this is where you find out the way you're allowed to attach to the building when you're rigging. What load can I put on this point, on this beam, on this bay? It's all spelled out. Right. And what, what kind of angle you can put it at. Yes. Because when you start bridling stuff, the angles you're at becomes very important where you collapse beams. So 
you know, any documentation you can get from the engineer, the um, look at what's being supplied with what, you know, compared to what it can supply is a fast and dirty way to do it. So why don't we step away from the nuts and bolts of this for a second and tell me a little bit about you. What got you going on all of this? How did you end up at Radio City? How did you end up in this business? And how did you end up being involved in um, standards writing? How I got involved in theater? Like a lot of people, I started in high school. I was incredibly charming, debonair, and the biggest geek you ever saw, and quite simply, girls. The cool people were in theater. They had a problem with the dimmer board in the little theater we had. It was a, it was a piano board, believe it or not. You know, my third episode of this show was with Eric Cornwell, and he said it's very important to know why you're getting into the business. For some people, it's to get a date. When you're 13 and pimply-faced, it's important. So dimmer board, got it fixed. Everybody thought I was wonderful. I thought I was wonderful. With something like that happening at a very impressionable age, you get into theater real easily. So I wound up dressing in black through high school, being one of the cool kids. I was going to a private high school. It was basically a druggy school because it was the 60s. Where was that? Where are you from? I'm from the Lower East Side. I grew up in uh, downtown Manhattan. I was going to a private school upstate. Finished up high school. Was too busy doing theater to deal with high school. So I got a degree, but you know I didn't really bother applying for any colleges or anything because I'm, I'm into theater and you know I'm having a good time and everything else. Came back to New York. I uh, was living on St. Mark's Place, and this would have been in the early to mid-70s. By the by, I'm such an adventurous person. St. Mark's Place being you know, 10 or 15 blocks from my parents' apartment. <laughs> it's not like I traveled across the country. Wound up getting a job working as you know an electrician in a little theater under a supermarket on 27th Street between, I think it was 8th Avenue and Broadway. And some guy who was in the theater, he was a high school teacher in Yonkers. Wanted to be a playwright. His wife was an actress. He started this little community theater up in the basement of the supermarket. And um, I got involved with that and um, spent a year or so working under the supermarket. At some point, Gene said to me, you know, you should go to college. And I gave him all my stories. He said, no, he went to the school in Pittsburgh. He wanted me to go there. I was basically working 12 and 14 hour days at the time. And, you know, week after week after week. And the only chance I had, you know, so I was like, all right, you know, I'll fill out an application. You know, it's easier to fill out an application than it is to listen to you bitch about I should go to college. <laughs> so I'll fill out an application. They'll reject me. You'll shut up. I got sabotaged. They accepted me. Gene had some of the designers that he'd brought in working with who were fairly competent guys, write Very nice uh, letters attesting to my competence. So I get a notice from Carnegie Mellon that says, you know, congratulations. You've been accepted to the uh, fine arts program. In, or in order to fulfill the requirements for the school, you have to take the SATs. Uh, you know, if you took them already, you know, this is our number. If you haven't taken them, take them and send the um, thing to us. So, you know, all right. Well, at that point, I, you know, I couldn't do anything about it. My parents would, you know, go to college. So my involvement in college was such that I read the letter again. Congratulations, you've been accepted. Take the SATs. Being the wise ass that I am, and my wife hates me for this, I took the SATs as I was required to. Wrote my name on the answer sheet and left. Oh. <laughs> they changed the requirements next year. <laughs> went, to, went to tech for a while. While I was away, Gene, the producer from the little theater you know, under the supermarket, basically had gotten some funding and you know moved to an old movie theater that, that was empty at the time. And the result was that after 15 years later, this little theater that I had been working for under the supermarket, and I only worked there for a year, under Gene Feist's direction and then the people that succeeded him, lo and behold, the roundabout, which was under the supermarket, was the roundabout. While all of that was happening, I'd come back to New York after a couple of years in Pittsburgh, um, not really going to school. I had gone to, to uh, school as a production major, figuring we'd build shows and do shows and you know, we'd be cool and we'd be real cool. At Tech, the design majors spent their first two years studying in the fine arts department, painting, sculpture, being artistes rather than being stage people. And there I was, this obnoxious 18-year-old from New York with a couple other obnoxious 18-year-olds from around the world <laughs> who wanted to build scenery and be cool, macho stagehands, having to sit in this course and study costume design. Didn't go over real big. So I would do my crew, which was from 8 to 11 or so. From 11 to whenever, you basically stayed behind and rebuilt the stuff that the uh, 
cast had built and built it right so it was proper. And then you, know, you went home at like four o'clock or whatever, and we'd get up at 8 a.m. to go to class. Well, after crew, I'd stop out with my friends from Pittsburgh and have a few pops and carry on and didn't get up until 11 or 12 the next morning, having missed all my classes. And it very became apparent to the faculty that academics and I did not get along. So after two years, I came back to New York. Okay. Um, spent some time hanging out with friends, doing whatever. It became readily apparent that I could sponge off my parents as long as I was going to school. So I spent a couple of years going to the first New York Technical College down on um, J Street, studying some engineering because I'm interested in engineering. They had a great cooking program. So there was a professional cooking program for hotel and restaurant chefs. I was a um, hotel and restaurant management major for a while. Uh, eventually, I got the, um, there weren't enough courses at uh, City Tech, transferred over to City College. Taking courses that you want, I wound up with big holes in my schedule. At one point, to fill like a five-hour hole between like a microbiology course that I was really interested in and a philosophy course, I, I, I took courses from wherever. Oh, technical theater. Wound up going into the um, City College Theater Department. Seemed to know what I was doing, wound up being the production electrician, hung a bunch of stuff, met um, some kid who was working at Riverside Church Theater as the assistant TD. They had a problem that some rigging collapsed. Al said, you know, could you come in and fix it? So did some re-rigging. When the current TD left, they offered me the position of TD. I became TD at Riverside. Went from there to Xenon the Discotheque, which was comparable pretty much with 54. Okay. Xenon was in the Henry Miller Theater. It was a theater being converted into a nightclub. The facade still says Henry Miller run it. So working at the nightclub, Local One came along and started to organize the nightclubs. They felt that the discos and clubs were the future. And historically, there used to be Local One stagehands in like the 20s and 30s in all of the um, Coca Cabana and all of those kind of nightclubs. So Local One you know, was, go was going back to get their um, old jurisdiction back. Business agent Bobby McDonald came down to us and said, hey, kid, you want to be in Local One? And our response was something to the effect of, what are you kidding me? Where do I sign? Who do I kill? Yeah. So we signed the pledge papers. The local contacted the employer and said, your employees have signed pledge cards. They want to be represented by a local. Management said, we don't want no stinking labor union in here. You're all fired. They brought the National Labor Relations Board and the Labor Relations Board said, you can't fire people for joining a union. Give them their jobs back and hire them. Management said, ain't no way. Labor Relations Board took them to court. The judge ruled in our favor. The judge said, you got to give these guys their jobs back. 10 or 12 years later, when they were attempting to sell the club to somebody else, they, tried, they, they went to hire us back because there was a huge fee of what they owed us for missed wages. So they wanted to hire us back and try to eliminate that. And they were going to sign with the local and then the prospect. So they never rehired you? Never rehired us, even though the judges ruled that there was nothing that could be done. Local one, you know, taking care of people. And, you know, in, in the um, tradition, basically, you know, they found us some work. So they tried to hire us back 10 years, you know, or so later, by which time, as you can imagine, Al was very, very firmly entrenched as an electrician. Curtis, who had gone up to Vanco, was, you know, doing electronics and very well thought of up in Vanco. And I had been at the music hall pretty much, and um, they couldn't get rid of me. So, you know, we, we weren't that anxious to uh, go back to work for a disco. It was loud. It was noisy. We were a little bit more grown up. Yeah. And we wouldn't have made the same amount of money. What the local did was they introduced us. I got sent to a loadout here. I got sent to the fly four for a week um, doing the King and I. You know, so they enabled me to meet people to get work. Radio City at that time, it had two master electricians. We're talking in like the 90s. There'd been two master electricians at the music hall since it opened in 1932. There was a Radio City Electrics crew who was very well groomed, very well positioned. Um, a lot of people came through the music hall on their way up within Local One. That they, you know, they would come in, they would learn learn the basics at Radio City, and then go off elsewhere. I was on the crew, and I didn't come up th through the usual ranks because I knew dimmers, I knew electronics. You know, I did did a lot of maintenance. Did some, you know, elevator design and rebuilding on the stage elevators. And you've just been associated with the hall ever since? Yeah. And being at the hall was nice because I was able to leave and do projects. I spent um, six or eight months up running special projects up at Four Star. person who had been running it left. A friend of mine got brought in to run it. He wound up uh, leaving to do a show and go on vacation. So he brought me to, to cover it. 
after the summer was over and it was like time to go go back to the music hall. It was like, I'd love to stay here. I love being in the shop. But, you know, this is what I make at the music hall. And that was like, well, okay, you know, it's been a pleasure. If you ever leave the music hall, come back. But we ain't paying that. Yeah. Did some tours. Uh, you know, kept my hand in a bunch of things. Gradually, one of the things I wound up doing is I wound up going to a lot of trade shows and stuff. And being a voracious reader, anything that, you know, was left around, I would read. I mean, I'll, I'll read cereal boxes at breakfast just to have something to read. At some point in my ancient history, I spent a year at Bucks County Playhouse as the stage carpenter, actually. And um, at one point, we had a bunch of uh, books on set for whatever show we were doing. And one of them was an old copy of the National Electric Code. And one day, for want of anything else to read, I picked up the uh, National Electric Code scenery. And as long as I put it back in the right hole in the scenery every night, nobody cared. And it was something like, you know, the 1948 Electric Code. It was, you know... Un- basically unreadable, but I had nothing else to do. There's not a lot to do in uh, Bucks County, Pennsylvania <laughs> in a, a January night besides freeze. So became familiar with that. There were some other you know technical books I read. And as I started doing more and more stuff and going to trade shows, I wound up going to the educational you know parts of the trade show. And people would make statements. And I was like, well, you know, that, that was like writing the book I just read. And I would discuss it with them. And eventually I got accepted into um, the secretive entertainment industry code making standards world, which is very inbred. Everybody in the industry who does this kind of work knows one another. There's not a lot of us. And the same people wind up being on the same committees and the same stuff. The people on panel 15 of the electric code, most of them are heavily involved with ESTA and the standards writing there. Some of these people are involved in writing UL standards for the entertainment industry. So, you know, it's the same group of people that, you know, sort of swap hats and swap roles and do different things, but it's all interbred because nobody's interested in it. That is something that's worth mentioning now. So if people want to be involved in standards writing and code stuff, what can they, what should they do? The first thing I would suggest is participating in the Esther codes and standards because the easiest one to participate in to begin with, but that's directly primarily related with our industry, our business. So that's the place where you're going to specifically find standards for rigging and hanging truss from the superstructure of a building, as opposed to a standard on how to weld the truss together when you're erecting the building or how to design the building truss to withstand earthquake loads. The nice thing about the ESTA codes and standards program is all of their documents are available online for free. You can get any of the lighting standards, any of the fog and smoke standards, you just go to um, esther.org, click on technical standards, click on download standards. What are some good resources for advanced training in electrics? That's a really good question. Outside of the people that give the courses for the ETCP certification, the renewal courses, there's a few people that give basic electricity courses. You can take them during any of the big trade shows at USITT. They give courses at uh, LDI. They give courses. The key thing to getting involved in the standards and advanced training is going to the trade shows, going to as much of the educational sections as you can bear that would be of interest to you. However, there's also a lot of knowledge to be gained from the displays and the booths that the various vendors put in. And this is one of the secrets. If you go during the class time, cut class from the LDI Institute and go to the trade floor. There's nobody on the trade floor. You've got these booths stocked with salesmen or engineers who have to be there because they're supposed to man the booth and there's nobody for them to talk to. You come up to them and you can spend an hour or two literally picking the brains of the guys that have developed the software, the system, the the engineering. And they're more than happy to do it. And hey, make sure you bring lots of business cards. You know, talk to people, get their business cards. During the breaks between um, classes, a lot of trade shows will have an hour break between classes and call it trade show time. It's the worst possible time to go see something because the floor is so busy, the salesmen and everybody manning the booths are concentrating on the people they know, the big spenders. They're all busy. There's a line of six people standing around waiting to talk to the salesman, and they don't have time for you. Yeah. Go during the class time. If you can, join ESTA. You can participate in the standards-making stuff without joining ESTA. The only requirement that they have is they have a $100 a year meeting fee. 
for the $100 you pay once a year, you can participate in as many of the Esther Standards Working Groups as you like. The way Esther is broken up is the standards portion is run by the Technical Standards Council. Then there are working groups that are responsible for specific areas of interest. The Rigging Working Group, chaired by Bill Sapsis, deals with rigging issues, rigging problems, codes and standards for rigging. They wrote the standard for aluminum truss used in the entertainment industry. The Fog and Smoke Working Group deals with fog and smoke, surprise, surprise. (laughs) Their concern is the safe use of of glycol and other atmospheric agents. They've... um, There's a lot of stuff that they do. They answer a lot of questions. If you're into atmospherics, that is a place, that is the place to join because in the conversations about the new standards, everyone updates everyone else on what's going on. The control protocols working group, these are the guys that wrote E1. That's 17. Advanced control networking. They're working on all of the next generation standards. Sometimes they're not as fast as other um, people writing standards, for instance, streaming ACN took quite a while to develop. Meanwhile, they were able to publish ARCnet, which is a much more limited protocol than streaming ACN. Uh, ARCnet beats ACN to the market. We'll see which one survives. But that's where the development of streaming ACN happens. The um, control protocols working group, very worth going to. If you're interested in that, there is a photometrics working group, fixture design lenses. Right now, they're very big on how do you describe color from one fixture to another? You know, you've got a console, you've got a show built into it, and you've got, you know, a color picked out, but now you put a different fixture in. You want the color to be what it was originally on the prior fixture, but there is no way to translate from one to the other unless you sit there and look at the deck and play with your faders until you find what you want. So they're working on a descriptive language of how to do that. Stage floors is another working group. It's obviously floors. It's of interest to carpenters. Basically, they began, how steep can you make a rig? Actors Equity asked Desta for some insight into how steep can a rig be, and it wound up being a project one of the things they had to do was how do you measure friction on a stage or friction on anything? They had to design a mechanism to measure friction. You know, just pulling a shoe along with a scale doesn't quite do it. So they had to design a system, and then they wrote a standard for how, how steep can a rake be and how slippery can a stage floor be. And the old um, answer of mix you know, three bottles of Coke to five gallons of water and mop the stage twice with that it's not an acceptable standards kind of answer. You've got to quantify it and, you know, come up with a slipperiness units. As rigging has been happening, as control, as networking has been happening, all of a sudden you have scenic elements being controlled by lighting boards. Uh, projectors driving lighting boards, which are driving MIDI, MIDI systems, which are driving motion control. With one ring to rule them all, Esther felt that it was necessary, or people felt that it was necessary to have some protocol that everything speaks and that you can reference everything back and forth to it. So the stage machinery working group happened, which is an evolution from the uh, pit elevator working group. So they started out doing uh, stage elevators, wrote something for pit elevators, and then realized that everything was interrelating with everything else. So there's now a um, stage machinery working group to deal with automation of uh, motion stuff, because there's a little difference between moving a moving light, spinning it around, and um, having the moving light hung too close to the next moving light, and the two lenses bang bang together. With spinning a turntable too fast, and some piece of scenery which hasn't flown yet, cables holding it up gets twisted. Yeah, you know, you can you can have a lot more fun and do a lot more damage. <laughs> there's numerous working groups. For the $100 a year, you can join as many of them as you want. You can apply to the working group to be an observer member. An observer member can attend meetings, they can speak at meetings, but they can't vote on standards. Vote on standards means you have to apply to be a member of the working group. Traditionally, what happens is if you apply to join a working group and you are physically at the meeting, they will accept you as a member of the working group. 
if you apply and you are not physically there, they will move you in as an observer. The reason why they do that is there's a requirement for a quorum. I think it's 50% of the attendants are required to be at a quorum. If they let people join Helta Skelta and people join and never show up at meetings, it affects the quorum and all of a sudden you never have enough members for a quorum. Nowadays, it's you have to show up at the meeting either online or if it's a real live in-person meeting, you have to show up at the meeting. Got it. Thank you for that really detailed explanation of all that. If I can just ask you one more kind of deep in electrics question. Sure, you got about four hours. <laughs> because I am not an engineer, because our listeners aren't engineers, but we have to deal with this problem. What is the best means we can use to account for the load that LED fixtures put on neutral? Okay, the first thing to remember is this is not an entertainment industry problem. We were one of the first industries to... Um, see that. And we actually have neutral overloading problems with conventional dimmers, which is why the uh, electrical code requires the neutral to be 130% of the um, phase conductor, because you do overload your neutrals. And this is the reason that you'll see a dimmer rack with two neutral cam ports, things like that. Right. And um, you're required to have 130%. There's, no, there's nothing that says you can't exceed the code. So you, you have to have 130% which is providing 200%. Hey, guess what? Everybody's okay with that. Yeah. Um, so this is a problem that occurs where you have power supplies. A lot of fluorescent lights also put uh, noise on the neutral and have spikes on the neutral. If you look through um, electrician stuff, EC&M, for instance, that's a magazine, electric construction and maintenance or some version thereof. They've been around you know, for 75 years. Their market is electrical contractors. They're always doing articles about neutral overloading, transformer problems, because it happens outside of our industry. We very specifically you know, have, have language that says the neutral has to be bigger. When you start turning loads on and off real fast, hundreds of times a second. Which is what you're doing with LEDs. And you're also doing it you know, with, with other things, chopping it up. You're doing it with your uh, the power supply for your computer, and that puts noise on the neutral. It's not just LEDs. Fluorescent fixtures do it. Uh, variable frequency power supplies do it. A lot of cases, like a variable speed motor drive, usually doesn't have a neutral. So even though it is making noise, the noise is you know is within the motor drive. You know it doesn't matter because it doesn't get out into the general electrical system, but it's there. When you get stuff switching on and off real fast, you know, multiple times a second. You're chopping the sine wave up into, instead of an analog sine wave, you've got a, basically you're getting a digital signal because you've got, you know, two tenths of a volt, you know, 20 tenths of a volt, whatever, whatever, whatever. When you start analyzing the waveforms of the thing, there are engineering laws that says you can take any series of electrical impulses and transform it into sine waves. And you can combine the sine waves. And depending on what the frequency is, some of them combine in a negative sequence where they cancel out one another. Sometimes they combine in a positive sequence where they increase one another. If your fast Fourier transformation comes up with at this point in time, you've got a positive going sine wave of a certain value and a negative going sine wave of obviously of the opposite value. When you add the two of them together, there's a difference. You start off with, you know, a, one sine wave is plus 20, the other sine wave is minus three you wind up with a 17 value at that point in the sine wave. If, however, you wind up with a plus 20 value sine wave adding up into a plus 17 value sine wave, now you get 37 units because both sine waves are going in the same direction. They add up constructively. When you're sitting inside a neutral and you get one sine wave going at one frequency and another sine wave going at the other frequency and they're adding up, all of a sudden, you've got more energy in the neutral than you put in the neutral, which is where your neutral overloading comes from. Got it. Because of the neutral overloading, what happened was, going back to the dimmers, they started to have a lot of problems with dimmers. And a dimmer needs to reference the zero crossing point, where your sine waves are at zero in order to do the turn on, turn off. If you've got a funky neutral, if you've got a funky zero point, it has problems dimming. They found that there were a lot of dimmers that in some cases, a lot of racks were not dimming properly. And the fast and dirty, it's a bad neutral. You got to fix your neutral. Answer did not work. People would, you know, 
fix their neutrals, rebond it, run a short neutral, and then solve the problem. And I think it was the guys at Production Arts who realized the problem was all of this noise on the neutral was increasing the current on the neutral. And all of a sudden, the neutral at the dimmer rack was at a different voltage level compared with ground than the neutral at the service entrance. The solution of bonding your ground to your neutral at the rack doesn't work because it creates an unsafe condition, creates an electrocution hazard. Very dangerous, very bad. Do not do this. Do not pass go. Do not collect 200 bucks. You wind up with a voltage drop in the neutral. Voltage drop raises the value of the neutral a couple of volts above ground. Dimmers start acting funky because where it thinks it's seeing zero is not zero. In order to combat that, the additional 130% neutral was added to the code. It also solves the harmonics problem. The worst harmonics or what they call the third order harmonics, they add up the worst. Third order harmonics are numbers that are divisible by three, which is 60 hertz, the fundamental frequency, times three, which is noise and switching at 180 hertz. The ninth harmonic, which is 60 hertz times nine frequency done at that. Any of the ones that are divisible by three tend to add up the worst. You can create filters to filter out third order harmonics which is done in industry where you've got a steady load, an entertainment industry where the load is varying not only day to day, not only hour to hour, but your load varies from Q to Q. It's impossible to calculate that. Yeah. So you solve it another way. So at this point, I mean, our business has been essentially shut down since March. Uh, What have you been doing since then? Starting projects and not finishing them. I'm involved right now. We're trying to rewrite part of the electric code for... um, film industry, because a lot of the um, Article 530 film and uh, TV studios is fairly old. In the old days, you were allowed to protect cables. Actually, you still are allowed to protect cables at 400% of their opacity. So basically, in Hollywood, you can tie a piece of four-root into a 1600-amp switch. Well, us sissies from the theater world don't really like that, because... You're supposed to monitor it and you're only supposed to have, you know, a 400 amp load on it. But if somebody were to plug into it a second load someplace and you wind up with an 800 amp load on a piece of four root that's protected at 1600 amps, your main is not going to see that. And your feeder cable is going to sit there and get hotter and hotter and hotter. And everybody's going to ignore it. And it's going to feel worse and worse because nobody's paying any attention to it until it finally bursts into flame. <laughs> the film industry says, well, you know, we've been doing it forever. When we look back at the history of the code... There used to be a footnote on it that basically said, you know, a film camera holds 20 minutes worth of film. A carbon on a carbon arc is good for like, what was it, 80 minutes, I think. But basically, you turn the lights on, you run them, you turn them off, you turn them on, you turn them off. So it's not a continuous load. The load is always going on and off. And if the cable is overloaded a little bit, the uh, duty cycle absorbs the overload. Because, you know, you, you run it for a while, it gets hot, you turn it off, it starts to cool down. Theoretically, it's some find an equilibrium, and hopefully the equilibrium won't be dangerous. It's called short time use only. Yeah, this reminds me of the vacuum cleaner cords, because it's like, it's okay that it's too small for the vacuum, because you're only going to use it a little bit. Same, same thing as the vacuum cleaner cord, same thing as the starting motor on your car. If you have a car, and you start cranking it, and cranking it, and cranking it, and it doesn't start, eventually you burn out your starting motor, or the fuse opens, or something else. Because you can't run a starting motor for picking numbers out of my hair. You can't run a starting motor for 20 minutes continuously, but you can run that same motor for five minutes and then an hour later come back and run it for another five minutes and another hour later come back and run it. You can run it five minutes at a time indefinitely, which is what the real world use of the motor is. So by allowing for the duty cycle there or the fact that your vacuum cleaner cord, which is you know skinnier than you can believe and very delicate, only works a little bit at a time, you can get away with that. Same, same thing with the 400% rule. Basically, when you run your lights and cameras for short periods of time, you can put more current through it. It's not suggested. It's against the code. It's a bad idea, but it is theoretically possible to put more current through it, and it'll cool off without making any damage. And when you're dealing with a professional studio crew, they will meter everything, and if something was overloaded, they would notice it and take corrective action. So we're working on modernizing that. We're changing that. You know, a lot of the article dealt with DC. Near as anybody knows, there is only one studio left in Hollywood that still has DC generators. 
There's still one? Yeah, just one. And near as we can tell, it's a vanity project from a studio executive who just likes having the old stuff around. Got it. As opposed to, you know, something that they use. All right, so you're working on modernizing that. Right, modernizing the code. Curiously enough, we had bought a house in Brooklyn years ago, started renovating the house, realized it didn't make sense to stop work at 3 o'clock to clean the sawdust off the kitchen table to have dinner. Uh, had an opportunity to move into the family's ancestral mansion on the Lower East Side, the co-op my father bought 100 years ago. Did that and um, need to go back to working on the house in Brooklyn, which is in the plans, but not in reality. And where's the place in Brooklyn? place in Brooklyn is in Vinegar Hill, which you've never heard of. I have. I'm from Long Island City. A lot of Brooklyn was very different when I was young to what it is now. But yes, I do know where Vinegar Hill is. You know, we've got the house that my friend Mark and myself, we bought it, you know, too long ago to mention. And unfortunately, I didn't really look well enough or the uh, house inspector didn't look well enough at the foundation to discover that one side of the house has no foundation at all. Mm -hmm. And the four beams sit on the soil. Oh, wow. For six feet. Yeah. So um, it's probably not repairable. And a couple of times we've had architects look at it. It's been like, tear it down and start all over again. So eventually we'll sell it or something. But, you know, it's good to have a project. Do you have any other thoughts? Anything else you want to say? Uh, remember the main? All right. No, I mean, I, I'm basically beat. <laughs> all right. Eddie, thank you so, so much for being on the show. Uh, I appreciate it so much. I'm very honored to be on a podcast that's as well-respected as you are. Thank you very, very much. I am honored to have you on the show. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. Use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at Podcasting Light, we tweet at Podcasting Light, and we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show.